Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to our Sunday night teaching time. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. The idea there, knowing how the life of God gets inside. Uh, Tonight, the title is Thoughts, Desires, The Will, and the Holy Spirit in the Renewing of the Mind. Thoughts, Desires, The Will. Those are the component parts, the way the Holy Spirit works to renew our our minds. It's important, of course, when I I mention thoughts, desires, the will, you can split those things up for teaching purposes and discussion purposes, but they don't really function separately. They're, They're interlaced. They're interrelated to each other. There's a continuous interplay between these uh, different parts, thoughts, feelings, desires, the will. They don't function separately. Each plays on the other and each affects the other. Images appeal to feelings and desires. Ideas get shaped over time. They form a a worldview. By that I mean they, they shape the values, the morals, the planning in the mind. The mind then affects decisions that are made with the will. And those things together end up forming what we call character of the individual. So, so what I'm saying is, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You can't see the Holy Spirit. He works in our lives. But it's not just a random work. It's not just one big mystic mystery. I know Jesus says the Holy Spirit goes wherever he wills. You can't put the Spirit of God in a box. But at the same time, Paul tells us we can sow to the Spirit. By that he means we can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit or hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in the renewing of our minds. Only, it's like farming. Only God can make a seed grow. Uh, The mystery of fertility in the soil and, and sunshine and moisture and somehow a seed grows. Only God can do that. But a farmer can put the seed in the ground. And he has to, in fact, if he wants a harvest. That's what this series is about. We've taken eight weeks so far talking about spiritual mindedness to form an understanding of how these component parts work together to bring about discipleship, spiritual transformation. So we're thinking about how we are created, how we're shaped naturally, and how God wants to reshape our lives supernaturally by the work of the Spirit in our minds for God's glory. Of course, your will, I mean, that's what God cares about the most. It's what makes the image of God in you. Animals react by instinct. People align themselves most completely with the natural world when they just react on the basis of their feelings and their desires. And they're most like God himself when they choose to initiate and create and become according to God's will and plan. God doesn't care how tall you are. He doesn't care whether you're black or white, rich or poor. He loves the astronaut, the dentist, 
the cattle rancher, the carpenter, loves them all equally. He will respond to the cry of the genius and the simple child with equal mercy and grace. He doesn't care one bit whether you're a blonde or a redhead. The part of you he seeks and responds to is your will and the choices you make, the decisions you make to follow him or not follow him. It's as if God has a heart monitor installed in every person and he looks for people who will choose him. You can see it. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. You make that choice to call on him. Who call on him in truth. Romans 10, 12 and 13. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so all the invisible, manifold distinctions that separate and distinguish people on earth, they disappear before God. He looks for people who choose him, who call on him, who enthrone him, who honor him with their wills. That's the most important thing about your life. You might not realize it, but it is. God doesn't care about your wealth or your fashion sense or your social standing doesn't measure you by your natural abilities or your education or your looks, your will. Do you enthrone him in the choices that you make? So that's what we're going to study tonight. Point number one. I want to talk about how human wills, mine, yours, how they become divided and then enslaved. And there's a sequence there. Divided wills and then enslaved wills. James actually talks about this in James chapter 1. Get a Bible, look these up. James 1, 14 and 15. Each person, any person, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. There's the choice in the will. And sin, when it is fully grown, doesn't stay the same size, brings forth death. So last week, don't know if you remember, but it's, on, it, it's online, we saw how our feelings, our desires, well, those, they're the trigger for sin in our lives. It's, it's in that 14th verse that I just read, James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, desires aren't sins in themselves. You don't have to give in to desires. They aren't sin in themselves, but they form the heart of temptation to sin. The trigger isn't the bullet that kills, but it fires the bullet, and it sets the process in motion. So, sin gains entrance into my life, into your life, through the appeal of some kind of image to our desires. Satan doesn't actually want you thinking these things through with your mind. He wants to engage your desires for wealth, pleasure, power, social popularity, esteem, greed, he wants to awaken these desires while keeping your mind unengaged. 
So he kind of tiptoes into your affections with the promise that all these things are going to be great while keeping your mind from thinking through logically the danger that you're getting into. That's how sin works. Desires without the mind processing things properly. James traces the sinful act back to the inward desire. The effect of the desire, if it's strong enough, especially if it's entertained for any length of time, the effect of the desire is hypnotizing the mind. We we saw last week that as the mind gets repeatedly hijacked by deceptive desires, Paul says the, the mind becomes futile, and he says it becomes darkened. Let me show you that. It's in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, the pagans do, in the futility, futility of their minds. See? 18. They are darkened in their understanding. There's the mind again. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Not talking IQ. They might be brilliant. He's talking about the, the spiritual, the moral ignorance. They're, they've listened to their desires for so long that they're, they've put their minds asleep. They can't process things properly. 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So Paul means, here are these people. The mind no longer functions morally as it should. That's why when you see someone like that, a bright, intelligent person, who, who, who caves in so drastically to some deceptive desire, we, we stand back and we say, well, how could he do something like that? Because there's nothing rational in it. It doesn't make any sense. But there's something else that happens in this process of giving in to our feelings and desires. Uh, The habitual falling of a desire increases the hold that that desire will have over the will. What What I mean is treating our feelings, our desires, as though they were our will... Making our, making our desires the reason for doing something. It creates kind of a spiritual inertia in my ability to choose properly down the road. A, a, a darkness. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. This is, church, this is a vitally important principle in the spiritual realm. And it relates so powerfully to sin and the will and the choices we make. It is, it is, here's the principle. It is always easier to do what you have already done than to do something other than what you have already done. In other words, you and I will tend to keep doing what we have done and more so the more we've done it. That's how sin Put you on its payroll. Paul talks about the wages you're hired by sin. If you want that same principle in additional 
biblical terminology. It's not hard to find. John 8, 34, Jesus, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, that's the same principle. Once you do something, it's easier to keep doing what you've already done than to do other than what you have already done. That's the bondage principle. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's your will. So James says sin in its birth, it has its birth in the realm of the feelings and the desires. And as the mind gets hypnotized and the will caves in, the desires are treated as though they are the will. They are the reason for acting. And as those desires grow in their demand, which they always do, and as the mind is hijacked, to excuse and justify the choices made with the will, it just becomes increasingly difficult to turn the life around. So this is the process. This is the entanglement of the will. This is how entanglement happens. What, what does this entanglement look like? How does this condition manifest itself? Let me talk about that just for a minute. Usually, as people are experiencing the loss of their true selves, the loss of the freedom of will and choice, they, they still have some desire to live better than they do. I mean, the will doesn't die all at once. It, it becomes divided. It becomes fractured. Their, their wills are marked by uh, duplicity rather than simplicity. They are, in other words, the opposite of what Jesus calls the pure in heart. doesn't mean sinless. He means they're only willing in one direction. Those people will see God. We need to think about those words, Jesus' words, purity of heart. Years ago, Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Not a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I mean, that's it. The entangled will, the will that has been compromised, put to sleep by caving into desires in different ways. It's no longer a will that works in one direction. Part of your being is being pulled in each way. And if that just seems like, boy, Pastor Don, this is just some intellectual talk. You need to think again. It's right at the core of how our lives are shaped I could come up with dozens of real-life examples. Here's a young man. He's dating an unsaved woman. He's a Christian. He's been told that he shouldn't do it. In fact, he knows. He can quote the verses that tell him it's wrong. And on a certain level, he, he still wants to live for God. On a certain level. But his mind is somehow blind to the truth. That he can quote from the Bible, but his mind can't can't function around it. And his will isn't strong enough to pull him away from this companion. Okay, what's gone wrong here? This happens dozens of times. What's gone wrong? Why isn't his will, 
He knows the Bible verses. He knows what his Christian friends tell him. Why isn't his will taking over in the right direction? Well, it can't. It can't because he's already given another part of his being, his feelings, his passions, his desires. He's already given those away to his girlfriend. So there he is, feeling guilty and satisfied at the same time. Part of him going one way, part going another. James would say he's double-minded. He's unstable. You can't live like that. There are a thousand situations every day where this splintered willpower cripples professing Christians. In its early stages, it just leads to moral confusion, frustration, condemnation probably. In its final stages, if left unrepented of, it just reveals the true nature of emotional emptiness and spiritual deadness. See, that's because while I'm free to turn my will in any direction I want, I'm not free to choose the consequences of the way I use my will. I get that in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. You know these words. Paul says, do not be deceived. Okay? When a verse starts with the words, do not be deceived, you know the writer is saying this. He's saying, there's, there's a kind of thinking that looks like it's true. Don't be deceived by it. So he's going to say something that goes contrary to some of the natural inclinations you'll see in the world around you. He's going to say something that's kind of countercultural. What is it? Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, that's the desires. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap Corruption. That's all you're going to get. The desires promise big and deliver small. The one who sows to his own desires, his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit, even if it's counterintuitive, even if it's painful for a moment, he will from the spirit reap eternal life. Those are, those are profound words. Words, each act, here's what Paul is saying, each act, each turning of the will, each little choice, you make thousands of them, each little choice never ends in itself. It's, it's only the beginning of a process. You, you don't just use your will, you sow your will with your choices. And the reaping, well, that's out of your hands. Point number two. We're well over halfway done, so hang in there. There's a way of exercising the will in the process of spiritual formation that will rarely, if ever, be fruitful for godliness. Now, before we examine this path specifically, let me lay some groundwork in understanding the way God has created us as persons in his image. We all have these three things in common. Everybody. We think. We feel. Desire. And we act. 
Mind desires will. We think, we desire, we act. I mean, we're more than the animals. We don't, or at least shouldn't, just be steered by blind instinct. We are to pursue spiritual mindedness by building the forms of godliness with our wills into which the Holy Spirit can pour his life and presence. Now, all three of those parts, thoughts, desires, will, all of them are God-given and they're beautiful when they're ordered and used together and prayerfully submitted to the Spirit's direction. But, but these three parts of our being can also fight and be at war against each other if we're careless and carnal. Now, here's how some people think they're going to use their willpower to serve God. When, in fact, they're not going to be able to do any such thing. Here's one way people use their wills, but with very little lasting spiritual fruit. Some people, perhaps very sincerely, they rely on their willpower, perhaps even calling out to God in prayer when tempted to sin, but, and this is the crucial point, they don't change the diet of their minds. And so they don't change the object of their affections. They just pray that they'll be able to use their will at the last minute and choose their way out of a jam. So in other words, they try to summon the right choice, summon their will right at the moment when they feel the force of temptation, desire, and are about to fall. They try to use their willpower to cancel out the deception in their minds, the enticement of their affections. And, and you simply can't be successful very consistently using one-third of your being, your will, to put the brakes on the other two-thirds, your mind and your desires. It's never going to work. Point number three. There is an effective and spiritually fruitful way to exercise your will in the process of spiritual mindedness. And let me give you the principle. We're wrapping up. Let me give you the principle right up front. And then we'll analyze it. Here's the principle I'm talking about. The primary purpose of your will is to focus the direction of your mind. Let me say it again. The primary purpose of your will is to focus the direction of your mind. We've already looked at this verse, but Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, doesn't mean this. Your heart, the control center, your mind. Keep it with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, most commonly, the heart is the mind. Not always, but 90% of the time, the heart is the mind in the scriptures. But the first words in this verse aren't directed to the mind. That first verb is the word keep. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep, keep is a will word. It's a choice word. A choice is being called for. It's the glory of the image of God in human persons that we have the capacity to choose where we're going to place our attention, our minds. We can think. More importantly, we can choose about what we will think. What you give your attention to, you will love. What you love 
will control your life. But this is the only part you control, what you give your mind to. You can't use your will in some desperate last-minute attempt to override your affections, your thoughts, your desires, all the things you've been putting into your mind. However sincere the effort, it will never be effective on a long-term basis. You, you simply can't survive for long using your, hoping to use your, your strong willpower as a fire extinguisher for everything bad that you've been putting into your mind and your heart. But you can use your will to direct your mind to shape your desires into the future. That's the plan the Holy Spirit will bless. The Holy Spirit wants all of us taking a long view of the growing of the fruit. Think of how fruit grows. The growing of the fruit of the Spirit and holiness. That's the whole point behind that analogy Paul uses of sowing to the Spirit and sowing to the flesh. Sowing is what you do first in the process of growing anything, including your life. But what you sow, I mean, that determines what you're going to harvest. Think about this. Obviously, it's too late to change our desires right at the moment of choice and decision. But it is within our power to choose, with the Holy Spirit's transforming power, we can change what our thoughts and our desires will be in the future by what we give our minds to right now. Point four, how this process begins. I'm convinced that the pursuit of spiritual mindedness begins when we aren't thinking about it very much. It's probably not just in the prayer room or the altar or with your Bible open. The kind of spiritual disciplines you develop now will determine how your mind and your desires will guide you in the future. And the things you choose to set your mind on now will shape the affections and the desires that are going to come down the road and trigger everything else about your life. The Holy Spirit wants to form the character of Jesus in you. And he wants to start that now. He wants your involvement. The primary means of your involvement will be to use your will to set the directions of your thoughts and your mind and that'll shape the future desires and affections of your heart. You can't get there instantly, but you can begin instantly. Here are some basics to remember, okay, as we wrap up. I know I said I was wrapping up before, but now I really am. First, spiritual character is measured by the kind of worldliness you tolerate and live with when you know you should forsake it. There's no doubt about it. The beginning of spiritual mindedness and character is always a growth in carefulness with your mind right now. Friendships, movies, internet sites, blogs, entertainment... There's no doubt about it. 
knowledge of this will always lead to fresh seasons of humble, thoughtful repentance. The next step is surrender. And when you think about surrendering your life to God, don't start with your money. Start with your time. We would far rather give God our money than our time. You begin to surrender more and more time and effort to get God's truth, his thoughts, into your mind. To do this more means you'll have to do something else less. There's only so many hours in the day. But we all have the same number of them. Get serious about going to church regularly. There's people, you're listening to me right now, and you haven't darkened the door of the church in two years. And if you don't think that's affecting your spiritual life, you're dead wrong. Everybody else sees it. You're the only one who doesn't. Make the effort. Third step. Third step is a growing contentment and joy with the kind of momentum God will bring into your life through the renewing of your mind. Remember, you can't start with the joy. You can't start with this step. This third stage of contentment and joy is grown over time as you persist in the first two steps, determining how much worldliness you're content to live with and giving God enough time to set your affection on spiritual things. Those two things come first. Then the joy starts to flow as you you don't just... uh, Pursue righteousness, you actually start to prefer righteousness. That wonderful discovery doesn't come in the very first stages of spiritual mindedness. And you don't have to pretend that it does. I think a lot of Christians do that. But as the mind is increasingly given more and more over to the way and will of God... The pain of denying self, it's still there, but you start to feel it less and you start to delight more in the things of God. You get more joy in the journey. The fourth step, engagement in the will of God. I don't just mean serving God in the sense of avoiding sin. I mean engaging in serving God, his purposes in this world. You start to care more about not just being good, that's true, but being good for something, working at something. I no longer delude myself that I'm somehow serving the Lord just because I don't get drunk or curse or watch dirty movies. That has nothing to do with serving the Lord. Those are just minimal standards of holiness. I'm talking about joy in building the kingdom in this world. Putting on Christ. Putting on Christ. That's the only way to rise above the desires of the flesh. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Use your will to diet your mind now to shape holy desires in the future. Learn the difference between Christ in you, conversion, and Christ formed in you. Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And this forming of Christ, with your cooperative effort, 
It just grows in power, in fruitfulness, and discovery of the inward work of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes again. Don't forget, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, we're going to be right here in the sanctuary. What comes to your mind when you think about God? A pretty good crowd has been gathering. There's study notes for everyone. There's children's ministries at the same time. We'd love to see you. So two in-person gatherings every week. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Remember, what you give your attention to, you will start to love. What you love will control your life. I'll see you when we gather. God bless you, church. Love one another.